Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Nina stands in the middle of her studio apartment surveying the wreckage. The amount of trash is impressive. A multicolored assortment of takeout containers, crumpled Grubhub bags, randomly tossed clothes, wine bottles, and Yoohoo cans. Did she really buy a six-pack of Yoohoo? It's a snapshot from the life of someone who hit a rough patch two months ago, not two weeks. The morning light streaming in from the sliding glass doors behind her creates ominous, uneven shadows, as if promising that the worst is yet to come. At least this stage of her grief is a secret shared only with Sid. Sound asleep on the bed, she swore she would train him to stay off. She knows he won't tell anyone. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Peter McDade, author of Songs for Honeybird. This novel, set in Atlanta, intertwines the stories of two people who were once in love. Nina is a waitress, slowly making her way through college, but not yet living like an adult. Then a dog named Sid comes into her life, and their conversations start to reveal a better way for Nina to consider her long-dead father and her own place in the world. Ben is a doctoral candidate at that same college, struggling with his idea for a dissertation about the first integrated band in Southern rock history, whose two main members die in a sweeping fire one long ago night. Ben and Nina's lives intersect for a year until it doesn't work and they each go their separate ways. It's a late coming of age and coming of wisdom novel about Southern life and how it started to change in the 1960s. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me today. Well, hello, Galit. Thanks for having me. So how did you decide to write songs for Honeybird? Uh, That's a very interesting question um, because it actually started as a short story that I wrote uh, 20 years ago. And I just had this one scene where this couple who didn't even have names um, are preparing to move in together when she, when the woman tells a man something that the man just can't understand, he can't quite process. Um, 
And instead of moving in together, they wind up breaking up. And the woman tells the man that her dog, this stray dog she had adopted, talks to her, literally talks to her. And he goes from thinking that she must be joking to understanding that she's really telling him what she believes. And in the course of just a few pages, he decides that he can't live with this person. And it was a four or five page kind of like a, like a sketch almost, right? Like a doodle that you, you work on one afternoon and you put it away and you never think about it again. But I kept thinking about these two people and wondering if I could turn this idea, right? This kind of almost, almost like a joke, right? Like she's got a dog that talks to her um, into something that could be a little more than that. More focusing more on the idea of what is something somebody could tell you, right? That would make you realize you could not be with that person who you previously had loved. And from her point of view, is there, you know, is there something that you're supposed to keep secret from everybody, even this, the person you feel closest to? And once I had that question kind of in my mind, then I tried to expand it into more of a novel instead of just a sketch. And when did the songs come in? So I wrote an entire draft of the book that is really quite awful. So um, it just didn't work. Um, I don't know if you've ever written anything that just, like it's technically, it's, it's complete. It goes from A to Z, but there's no life to it. And so I put it away and wrote something else and returned to it years later. And Ben is uh, the male protagonist and... In the original novel, he had been researching this um, a historical, you know, fictional senator from Georgia who was a, a diehard segregationist. And Ben is a PhD history student, and so that was his topic. The songs came when I changed Ben's topic from Harlan Honeybird, the kind of racist politician in the 60s, to Harlan Honeybird, who was the son of the politician. And the son was in this band. And all of a sudden, that whole storyline took on a whole new life because I found it much more interesting to look at this, this next generation, right? Um, what happens at, to the children of these, you know, ridiculous segregationist politicians of the 60s. And once Ben was in a band, that's when the songs came in because I thought it would be a very interesting way to get at what that next generation was thinking through the music. Um, and also as a musician, it just helped me understand Ben and that plot line so much more, right? Because now I had a, a way in as well. Hmm. So as a classical musician who used to hear repetitive chord changes and a lack of improvisation in most rock music, I'm wondering, what are the defining characteristics of Southern rock, which is the genre that they're playing? Yes, it's uh, interesting. Um, in fact, uh, my editor and I had to make sure I didn't actually use the phrase Southern rock because that doesn't appear until the late 60s or early 70s. So actually the name comes along after the sound. Um, the sound itself, particularly at this early time period, um, like the conceit of the book is that Honeybird is the first integrated rock band that they predate 
the Allman Brothers, who we typically think of as the first kind of Southern integrated rock band, um, California have Sly and the Family Stone, and they were integrated. And there are other examples too, but on a larger scale, um, we typically think of Sly and the Family Stone or the Allman Brothers. And so Honeybird, the name of the band, they're drawing on the guitar sounds that are coming along in the, in the early 60s. But also the Southern part is kind of the... Think of the R&B part of the South. Think of, uh, say, Otis Redding, who was also from Macon. And Otis Redding would have been before Honeybird. And so I'd like to think of the the people in Honeybird as like growing up listening to uh, Otis Otis Redding records and hearing gospel music in the South, but then also taking the loud guitar sounds that were coming along in the early to mid sixties and kind of mashing them all together. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so interesting. And you, as part of this book, you created an entire soundtrack and you brought musicians together to record it. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes. I, uh, you know, my previous career was playing drums in a rock band and music has been a central part of my whole life. And again, you as a, as a musician yourself, you can probably relate to the idea that the, the world makes sense to me the most through music sometimes, through music and books. And combining the two just helped me see the story better. Um, I understand the characters more, especially if, if the characters are musicians, I understand them more if I can hear the music that they are making. So I don't write music myself, but I have lots of talented and indulgent friends who are always up for adventure. And so once I realized I had this subplot involving this 60s band, I really wanted to hear what a Honeybird song sounded like. So I wrote some words and messaged my friend Jeff Jensen, who writes music and was in a band with me for 20 years. And I met Jeff in third grade. And I know he's always up for basically any sort of adventure. So you need to have that friend where you can send a message and say, okay, uh, I'm writing a novel. Do you want to write the music for a fictional 1960s band from Macon? And, you know, 10 seconds later, he writes back and says, sure, of course. And so I had a couple of other people write music for me. And what I find really interesting is that the book obviously shapes the music because I write the words trying to imagine myself, right? As whichever character is writing the words. But then when I hear the music that pivots back and further helps me to find the book. Once I can hear the sound Honeybird is making the scenes in the book where the band is present or being talked about, uh, for example, like there are excerpts from, Ben's dissertation in progress where he's analyzing songs. Um, All of that came much more alive to me. And I think I was able to do a better job of writing it once I could hear the music um, and use that to kind of um, uh, further understand what's actually happening in the minds of these characters. So the two wind up working, um, you know, feeding off of each other. And I really enjoy that process. Mm, that was that's such a fun thing. So, how will what if somebody's listening to this and thinks I'd really like to listen to? I'd like to hear this music. How would they do that? 
Oh, there are plenty of ways. Um, first of all, the streaming service Spotify, uh, if you put in songs by Honeybird, Ah, luckily okay, there, aren't that's that, what, there aren't that many records with that title, so that should pop up pretty quickly. And if you go to my publisher's homepage, Wampus Multimedia, um, or just Google songs by Honeybird soundtrack, it should pop up. And there's eight songs, um, six by the band Honeybird, and two songs from different um, other different groups that are also mentioned in the book. I, I hear a film somewhere here, but let's let's move on. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so your protagonists are Ben and Nina, and we're going to address them separately. But to start with, why do they both have intense issues with their fathers? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I think that a lot of my books tend to have father issues. A lot of my characters are, are dealing with that challenge. And I think it's, A, because... I'm now a father myself of two teenage girls. And so the question, right, of what makes a, a good father is kind of present in my mind at all times because I'm struggling to be the best one I can. And on the other side, uh, when I was growing up, my parents divorced when I was very young and my father disappeared. And so the question of what what kind of person, right, can can abandon his children is also there. And I think it only makes sense that my characters tend to always have this kind of issue. And what my job in revision is to make sure that I'm not just giving everybody the same, you know, complicated issues that I may have uh, about father issues. Um, But to try to come up with examples of, I'm always looking for examples in fiction of, you know, like you're, your good father, your great father, and your bad father, right? You know, somewhere in those three levels. And I try to make each book have some example of each of those flavors. Don't always succeed, but um, they're they're definitely both struggling with um, what happened to their fathers. And in Nina's case, because the father is is gone, he dies when she's at a young age. And in Ben's case, you you have the other example, right? There's a father who stays, and maybe is not always being what we would think of as a good father. Um, as hard as I am on Ben's fathers, I think sometimes in the book, I also tried to get across, or I hope the reader gets across what I feel, which is like, at least he's still there, right? He does in his own kind of, at times, incompetent way. He is trying to still be present in Ben's life. Mm. Nina seems sometimes a little befuddled, but well-meaning. Uh, first of all, is she based on somebody that you're very fond of because she's a sweetheart? And secondly, did you love writing her? Uh, no and yes. Nina, actually, um, I'm, I'm, I love your description, and, and I like that you felt a connection to her because it, it took me a while to, to find Nina or to find her voice. Um, I shouldn't say flat out know that she's not based on anybody I know because she's probably based on lots of different people I know and just like little bits and pieces that have been put together. Um, I had a lot of fun writing her. I I felt that even though I like that description too, she's a bit befuddled at times. Um, 
there's something in Nina, right, that never lets that stop her, or at least not doesn't let her stop her for for too long. Um, and I do feel that she's trying to become more engaged with the world around her to figure out how to do that. And that's always a lot of fun to write about, you know, when, when there's a character who's trying, right, even if they're not succeeding, it's fun to, to write about that, that attempt to engage. Yeah, so I don't want you to give away any secrets, but what's going to, just between you and me, what's going to happen to Ben? Is he going to make it as a historian? Is he going to get his PhD? Um, yes, I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like that's the thing Ben does best. There are lots of things in the book that Ben struggles to do, I think. Um, but I think that he, he is going to uncover an interesting story that had not been covered. And I think he's going to good, do a good job of analyzing why it's important. And I think that the book itself, I feel like he, he finishes a, a book that tells a good story. Okay. What's your connection to Georgia State, where Ben is a grad student and Nina's a part-time undergrad? You sound really familiar with it. Uh, I am. Uh, ben works in a place called the Cube Farm, where, uh, you know, if you have a research assistantship, if you're an RA or a teaching assistantship, you're a TA, um, you got a little cubicle in this kind of converted classroom with other uh grad students and i had i had my little cubicle up on the eighth floor i got a master's in history at georgia state after getting an undergrad there and um double majored in english and history and i went to georgia state because after my career as a musician um suddenly you're 30 and you don't have a college degree and the band is no longer functioning so i decided to go to college and at georgia you can go to a state university for free um, if you maintain a 3.0 GPA. So that seemed like a pretty good deal to me. Great deal. The city of Atlanta plays a huge role in the novel, mostly from a loving standpoint. But every now and then you question the place. Can you say more? I moved to Atlanta from New Jersey 30 years ago with the band I was in, and we moved down here to be big rock stars. We told everybody that we'd stay maybe a year, you know, and 30 years later, here I am. So I, I really enjoy novels where there's a, a strong sense of place, even if, if, some, if it's some fictional place that doesn't exist or a real place, if you really feel like the characters are grounded somewhere. Um, and I feel like Atlanta's at a very interesting moment that it's a city that is made up it has a lot of people from different parts of the country who have moved here for various reasons. Um, and these people are bringing with them new ideas. It's always going to have its own past to reckon with. And it's a very complicated and not always a very pretty past, but it's, it's still here. Um, it's here in the geography. It's here in the, the names of roads, which there are some roads in Atlanta that change name when they go from the northern part of town to the southern part of town. And that was because people who lived on, you know, one side of Atlanta, the upper wealthier white people, did not want to have the same mailing address as the black neighborhoods. And so the name, like it's a city whose past is still literally shaping its geography. Um, and that's 
complicated part where I'm not always maybe so loving, but I do love being here. And I do think that it's a city that like, I'm excited to see where it is 50 years from now. Hmm. Ben's father divides the world into two kinds of people, actors and assessors. And then later in the book, Nina's with Howard, who says the world is divided into people who take life seriously and those who don't. So what's your take? What's Peter McDade's feeling about this? Is the world divided into two groups of people and what are they? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I've, I've not been asked that before. Um, I think that any system that boils any large group into only two choices, right, is is an incomplete description at best. Um, that that we are both actors and assessors and sometimes more serious and sometimes less. At the same time, um, I do think that there's some some truth to both. Probably more I'm probably more on the Howard side of the equation than with Ben's father. And I like the way Sid describes what, how, how Howard phrased it, which is not just people who take this, the world seriously in terms of like um, always with a very sober outlook or um, not willing to see the, the lighter moments in the universe, but by seriously being like those who are present. And I, I do think that that is a fairly true uh, way of classifying people. Now, it's true that sometimes some of us are more present, like sometimes I do a better job of being present than not. But I think if you, we can strive to be in that group of people who are at any given moment aware of where they are and, and what they are doing and being a, appreciative of that moment, right? I think that's probably if I had one tip, right? That's That would seem to me to be one of the keys to actually making it through this time here, right, as successfully as we can. Good answer. Uh, you make references to rock bands, the rock bands of my, you know, youth growing up and still, like he's streaming a Jeff Tweedy solo album or there's a discussion between best albums. Is it the Beatles or the Who? And I love Ben's answer. It's songs in the key of life, <laughs> which I remember running out and buying in 1976. And you're also still playing in a band and you teach at the university and you're raising a family with teenagers and you're writing books. So Peter McDade, my question is, when do you sleep? <laughs> I'll have you know that I am very boring and often in, in bed by 10 o'clock reading and then falling asleep, um, which is very different from my life in my twenties where 10 o'clock would be when you would go down to the club to see the opening band and maybe you play at 11 or 1130 and like, you're not sleeping until two or three in the morning. Um, you know, I, it, it sounds like a lot, but it's also like, I often wonder how I can wind, find ways to, to do even more. Um, there's a lot of multitasking, of course, that even when you're, um, dealing with some household chores or trying to um, get some, I don't know, the grass cut or something, some tiny little part of your brain can be thinking about some scene that you want to write or, um, you know, some way to move uh, the, the plot forward and some piece you're working on that seems stalled or something. Um, and the, 
playing drums, which I still do every day, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to just kind of bang around for a while and then to stop playing and realize that I've come up with some, some key line that somebody should say somewhere, you know, um, some image that I need to make sure I need to put into the next book or something like it's, it's kind of all there together. And if you think about all those things, right, you know, um, I think of most of the universe moving at a sort of tempo the way that music does, right? And sometimes faster and sometimes slower. Um, and it's my job just to to try to enjoy each, you know, tempo <laughs> however it comes. And um, I know that a book is going to take me three to five years to write. So it's also kind of reassuring because like there's no big rush because that's how long it's going to take. All right. So is there a new book in the works right now? There is, as a matter of fact. Um, I'm working on my elevator pitch. So uh, I recently, over the pandemic, I joined a couple of uh, Zoom book groups. And with some friends in California, I read Mrs. Dalloway, which I had never read before. Have, have you read Mrs. Dalloway? Absolutely. And um, the hours that... That's the basis, Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, that's that's next. Um, I haven't made it there yet. Um, I admit that I was nervous about Virginia Woolf because I thought it was going to be very dour or heavy. Um, and it was not at all. It was totally enjoyable. Um, what I loved was the idea of just one life in the day of this person. Um, but as I was saying in my book group when we were talking about it, I'm like, I, you know, Mrs. Dalloway herself financially like she's pretty set right you know in terms of actual financial struggles of the day you know there's a dress that needs repairing but there's a maid that can do it you know and her big task is to buy flowers um that's not to demean what she's doing but i was curious if there could be a book with one day in the life of a person who was from a much different um economic situation and so the next book if i pull it off if i finish it uh, starts and ends at 6 a.m. And the main character uh, works at a Burger King, as I did myself um, as a struggling musician. And at 6 a.m., he takes his first order in the drive-thru. And that's how the book ends. And that's how the book begins. And you follow him over the course of one day. So he's dealing with the, the work part of his life. Um, and then the interpersonal relationships and the struggling with money um, and also still struggling to decide if he is actually a, a musician, right? I mean, you work at Burger King all day. Are you, is there still your primary purpose that was still a musician and how can that be? And, and kind of trying to get across how complicated all that really is in the course of one day in this guy's life. Mm, it sounds great. And I don't think they say to all be Patty's special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame. But I also worked at Burger King. Thank you so much, Peter McDade, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great. And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Peter McDade, author of Songs by Honeybird. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today. Also tomorrow, happy reading.